Hey this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science a podcast for data science enthusiasts where i interview practitioners researchers and calculators about their journey experience and talk all things about data science Welcome to Chai with Great Researchers, Great Computer Vision Researchers, CTDS Dot Show. In this episode, I interview Torsten Sattler, who's currently a CV researcher at CTU. Torsten's research interests span 3D computer vision, localization, and in general, AR, VR, and self-driving cars. As you expect, we dive into all of these. like all research conversations on the series this was really an insightful one i at least learned a lot about even in today's research the importance of traditional computer vision algorithms and the combination of these with the recent developments we also dive into his recent works to which you can find links in the description as a proxy to understanding how atostin approaches research problems now without standing between you and the amazing conversation Here's my interview with Dr. Torsten Sattler. Please enjoy the show. I am honored to be talking to another great researcher today, another great computer vision researcher, Torsten Sattler. Torsten, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. Uh And yeah, thank you very much for the nice introduction. I actually have to live up to it. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm really excited and somewhat nervous to dive into different topics with you. So uh, I know you got started in research when it was called what what we call now traditional computer vision. Yeah. Uh, what what made you get interested in uh, computer vision and uh, what what, did, what problems were you working in at that time? It's I actually got into computer vision by pure luck. So I um I never had a computer vision lecture during my uh, master studies. Um and I was actually focusing on theoretical computer vision. This is where I wanted to do my PhD. Um and I talked to my master thesis advisor and he said um I'm not 100% sure whether I will have a position for you and then I figured well I also like doing computer graphics. It was the second like among this and com- uh, theoretical computer science were the top things that I did in my uh, masters so i talked with the computer graphics professor um and i knew that i didn't want to do computer vision because a friend of mine had told me about it and he had said don't do computer vision it's also hacky uh i wanted to do i think i wanted to do uh, like photon mapping and all those fancy uh, realistic rendering techniques but luckily enough i got into um I was supposed to work on augmented reality and through that I I got into computer vision. Um I I worked on mostly on um like as you said classical computer vision camera pose estimation based on feature correspondences back then based on SIFT. 
And the nice thing was that at the end of my PhD, um, we actually published a paper on augmented reality, which is the thing, or at least localization for was an augmented reality demo, which was the thing that I was supposed to work on from the start. Well, it took us uh, it's like mul multiple years to actually get the technology where we could do this. So that was actually a nice, nice uh, ending to the PhD. Interesting. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm very happy back then that I didn't get my first choice, which was uh, uh, theoretical computer science. And I'm very happy that I didn't get my second choice, which was doing <laughs> rendering in computer graphics because computer vision has worked out well for me. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess, one of the things where you just have to be lucky. Uh, you, you've also made great contributions. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into those shortly, but uh, out of curiosity at, at that time, what was your uh, future vision of AR or VR? And uh, what's your vision right now? How do you see that changing our lives? Is it like the movies that we'll essentially live in an alternate reality where we'll interact with the world eventually? Do you see that happening? I, I think at some point, yes. I think this is, a, this is an interesting uh, social question behind AR and VR. It's if we all live in our own version of reality, what is like the consensus that we have as a society? Uh, and that's a question we will need to answer at some point. Um, but I don't think that we are there yet. Uh, I mean, we see the first AR, VR, MR headsets out there, like HoloLens. Uh, Facebook recently announced something in that direction. Um, but I think this is... So I, I like what Microsoft is doing in terms of going after uh, business customers because I think there's a much bigger use case there. And I haven't really seen uh, like a killer application uh, for AR for end users uh, besides games. And I think also the technology of having this in in uh, like a form factor like those glasses, I think we're still probably five or so years away from this uh, of getting there. So uh, I think there, there is huge potential, but at the moment, it's mostly in the industry. Definitely. I, I think and in the HoloLens uh, demo, they had showcased how you could use it in uh, design and other aspects. And that, that really appeared to be useful, at least to me, I think. Yeah, I agree. The other thing that I, I actually like as a use case, and uh, I should try this more often, is to actually have multiple virtual desktops, being able to, to have multiple extended screens. Um, but I mean, this... For this, you don't need probably don't need a full functioning AR uh, headset, but you can get by with local tracking. But what I'm curious to see is what will do this, what this pandemic will do to AR and uh, VR, because Zoom meetings are work well, but they are not very immersive. And I think this th this might short track uh, development of AR solutions, VR solutions in this space, because. I don't think that, that meetings will go away soon. Uh, I think everyone has discovered that this works. So, um, but if we can have them more in a more immersive way, then I think that would be nice. And okay. AR, VR might be a good so solution. Um, as of now, there's, there's also this uh, Zoom uh, fatigue going around as a term. And I, I think it's also to do with uh, the headsets that we have right now. So I, I think we also need to figure the hardware out apart from these applications. Yes, I, I agree. But especially, I mean, one-on-one one -on -one Zoom meetings work. 
about as soon as you have multiple people, it's it's still different from from like a real meeting. And what one of the things that I'm definitely missing is being able to easily use a whiteboard. And if you could do this in AR, I think that there would be a very nice market for this. Like have have virtual presentations. Um, but yeah, let's see. I think this definitely has opened up a lot of like the pandemic has opened up a lot of venues in this direction. Definitely. Uh, coming coming back to the research conversation, uh, so you've mm -hmm. contributed uh, to the field since so many years. There's there's been the deep learning revolution since and yeah. different trends. What's what's been your favorite trend uh, while working across the same domain for so many years? Um, I think I like uh, the learned local features. Like um, that was one of the things that I was like. Uh, it was very surprising to me. So we published this benchmark on long-term localization in, I think, 2018. And we figured we would be doing research for quite some time on this because it seemed like a hard problem. Um, and by now, like two years later, I think most of the data sets that we published back then are mostly solved. Uh, and that has a lot to do with like learned local features. Um, the other thing that I really like is when in terms of localization is um, the scene coordinate regression work that originated from Microsoft Research, where you, for each pixel, regress a 3D point in the scene. Um, and I've seen that work very well, also recently on more complicated scenes. Um, and so we published a paper at ECV on localization changing indoor environments. And there, the top performing method is, is one of those scene coordinate regressors. And that convinced me that those are very nice techniques. Um, otherwise, I think what, what interesting direction that I like is combining classical geometry with higher level scene understanding. Um, and their learning is super important, like doing semantic segmentations, uh, being able to, to identify what you're looking at and then feeding this back into some geometry processing stage, uh, where this, the information of what you're looking at actually informs your processing. I think this is something very exciting. And I think this is uh, also important because geometry methods work well, like classical things based on local features, if you if you get enough matches. Uh, but as soon as you go into more ambiguous scenes, so if like, my favorite example is uh, corridors at universities, everything looks identical. And as a human, we don't have a problem with this, but uh, our algorithms like structure motion slam typically uh, like to- in the first few weeks of universities, it's still confusing to navigate such corridors. It's, I think it's not only the first few weeks, but as a human, we are much better equipped at, at doing this compared to, to our algorithms. And at least my working hypothesis is that we have a much better understanding of what we're looking at. And we, to some degree, have like built some sort of model that allows us to do error checking, whether we actually at this situation by knowing we have to look for small signs that disambiguate things or, uh, or knowing that I can't have moved in this way because otherwise I would have needed to go through that wall. I think those type of priors uh, are currently still missing. And this is, I think, where, where machine learning will be like, crucial to, to feed this back in for uh, on what you asked about AR. One thing why I like working on AR and VR is uh, I think it's a nice um, way to train, uh, to uh, develop algorithms that should 
in the end run on robots. Because AR, VR, you can make mistakes. There's still human intelligence in the loop. So if your mapping or localization fails, it's not a complete catastrophic failure. It will take the user out of the immersiveness of the experience, uh, but it will not do damage because the human will still say, no, wait a minute, what you're telling me can't work. If you would apply the same algorithms on a robot and that robot drives into a wall, then uh, in the best case, you just wreck your robot. In the worst case, you're doing much worse things. So uh, I, for me, AR, VR is a stepping stone towards autonomous robots because the, the level of robustness and uh, accuracy that you need there, no, the level of robustness is lower than what you would need for a robot, but the algorithms and the techniques are very similar. Uh, to, to help us understand, can you help us appreciate where does uh, local feature or description or localization mm -hmm. come into the picture? Because I know you, you're also interested in self-driving cars as a broader topic. Yes. So in, in this theme, where, where, does, uh, where, does, where is the importance of uh, these topics? Um, I mean, every, every intelligent system that needs to, to interact or needs to live in the same world as, as humans, and that can be self-driving cars, that can be other robots, or that can, uh, what Andrew Davison, I think, calls intelligent augmentation systems, so AR, VR. All of those things, like techniques and, and machines, need to know where they are in the world. And this is where localization comes into. So you would like to, ideally, as accurate as possible, figure out where is my machine or system in the world, and then, based on this, make informed decisions. Um, and... The classical way of doing this is to build some sort of scene representation, traditionally a 3D, uh, sparse 3D map where each 3D point is associated with local features because it was created from those local features. Um, and then once you have correspondences between features in an image and 3D points in the scene, you can do pose estimation. Um, so that's the traditional way. Uh, nowadays we see solutions that directly try to regress um, the pose of the camera in the scene. Uh, so they, the scene representation is essentially a set of weights inside a neural network. Um, but those things don't work that well at the moment. They are not that accurate. Um, uh, what works very well and it's very accurate is to, for each pixel regress, the 3D scene uh, coordinate. So rather than explicitly storing a set of 3D points, um, you implicitly store them in the weights of a neural network. And then once the, the network gives you 2D, 3D correspondences, and then you can do classical RANSAC-based pulse estimation or whatever pulse estimation you prefer. Um, those things work well in, in smaller scenes. And as I said, in the ECV uh, paper, we saw that they actually also work well in more complex scenes. I haven't seen them scale up to larger scenes, though. Um, but it's it's a very interesting direction for research, and uh, there are some very cool techniques out there. Well, one of the burning questions from from learners is: uh, Do I need to know this OpenCV stuff? Do I need to know all of this traditional stuff? And you're also mentioning that there's a nice mix of mm. both of these techniques. So, what's what's your stand on that? Should we just go into deep learning, skip uh, shift algorithms, uh, skip uh, ransack algorithms? I, I wouldn't say, I would say you still want to, to learn this. And I think um, I, it, 
at least a couple of years ago, I talked with someone uh, in the self-driving car industry and they said, it's super easy to find someone who can train a network, but it's super hard to find someone who knows all the classical stuff. The thing now is actually a good time to learn about this <laughs> classical stuff. Um, so, and the reason why I think so is, uh, so in 2014, when all the machine learning started to be become big in, in computer vision, everyone said, well, we're going to learn everything. Uh, the network will learn this. Uh, and then if you look at, so that was, for example, for multi-view stereo, uh, the case. And then the next year, everyone said, oh, we are building epipolar geometric constraints into our uh, loss functions, because it turns out that this helps. Um, so I think it's still valuable to learn it, uh, because in many cases, there's efficient ways to calculate this. And I think by, by teaching, um, a machine that there's this geometric relation between the 3D world and uh, the 2D world that it perceives, it actually frees up resources. So you don't need to learn this and hopefully you can learn for much, uh, a much, a sm much smaller amount of data. There was, I think it was um, from Steve Good and others, uh, there was an interesting paper called Declarative Networks, A New Hope, where they showed that they can actually have network layers that solve an optimization problem, and then you can backpropagate through them. Uh, so that opens up the the um, possibility to have those hard-coded but differentiable layers that encode geometric knowledge. Um, so I think it's it's still valuable to learn about this, at least the basic stuff. Like you mentioned, people often miss the point that you don't just need to train, also you need to run inference on uh, whatever the end machine is. And uh, if, if these aren't scaled down to be low resource, you end up building a bulkier uh, machine, yeah. which, which ends up taking more resources. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's also, okay, so one thing that I'm not 100% sold on is that you need to train everything end to end so that you actually have to have a post estimations part of your training pipeline because often you can find a loss function that actually does something similar without actually having to requiring you to uh, to put the the actual post estimation, for example, into a loss function. But then again, we're at the beginning of uh, of people trying this out, so maybe in here I'll be totally wrong. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I, I, again, it's it's uh, we're talking about research. I'm, I'm completely an outsider, so mm -hmm. uh, I, I look at all the questions as uh, very interesting questions. One. I'd, I'd like to transition into the topic of uh, 2D to 3D mapping because that'll mm -hmm. allow me to talk about your paper. But before yeah. that, uh, you've been working on these problems. What's what's your current interest in these uh, in localization or, or mapping? I think for me, it's uh, some sort of integrating some sort of human level scene understanding into mapping and localization algorithms. So I think this is this is the interesting part. Because as I said, there are enough failure cases where, where things quickly go wrong. And as a human, I said, why is it doing this? Why can't it un understand that this the solution that it computes is not physically plausible, not geometrically plausible? And as a human, you look at this and say, okay, this is clearly wrong. Uh, so th there seems to be something that, that we know about, uh, that we understand about the spatial structure of scenes that is not there in, in current algorithms. And I think understanding what this is and then feeding this back into uh, geometric uh, algorithms will be very interesting and will make things more robust. It will make things more widely applicable 
I think that's a very interesting topic. Do you think we should somehow encode these as uh, rules into the system or create a system that end-to-end understands these through, through some process? I don't know what the what the better approach is. Uh, end-to-end learning seems definitely easier. I mean, the problem with rules is that you need to handcraft them. And uh, uh, then the question is, when do you have enough rules? Does your rule set describe everything, right? Um, I think one interesting question is, can we learn rules from data as well? So can there be like an additional layer, like a rules layer that you can also learn and that uh, where you can um, add rules, subtract rules? I don't know, but I think this would be very cool. It's it's definitely fascinating. Uh, Coming to the topic, I I really love to understand how great researchers approach uh, different Mm -hmm. problems. So... I would like to use the your recent work D2Net uh, mm. or semantic visual visual localization. Just quoting it for the listeners. You can also find links to these in the show notes. Uh, how do you approach such problems? And uh, would love to dive into these as well. Um, so I can't tell you what great research it is to. I can tell you what I do. <laughs> uh, so the D2Net is actually uh, so we there was an interesting paper by Yorgos, uh, Yorgos Tolias, um, which is a paper on image retrieval where they built an image representation by running an image through CNN and then for each feature map finding the, the maximum activation and then their descriptors essentially, like an image level descriptor is just the values of the maximum. And they showed that the activation maps that they get are, are sparse and the idea that we had is well, if you get sparse maps, uh, you can actually use your uh, feature maps both to compute a descriptor, which is all values at the uh, at a, speci- a certain position, but also as a descriptor by essentially trying to figure out what are interesting spatial locations uh, in these sparse feature maps um, that are different from its neighbors, uh, from their neighbors, and that's essentially what D2Net does. Uh, and the the idea was that. You you get both a detector and a descriptor, where the descriptor a detector part comes for free because the detector is defined by your descriptor. And we saw that um, you actually can do very well just with pre-trained networks. Uh, training them improves performance a bit, but uh, it's uh, not that much that you would say it's a day and night change. Um, which I think is an interesting insight because we we, we were using a network trained for uh, classification and that gave us very good key points. Um, so that was, I think, an interesting insight. And it, I would attribute it to the network having seen like a wide variety of images, trained for millions of images. Uh, so I guess this goes in the direction of just more data helps. Um, and yeah, it was interesting to see how well this works and how well this helped us to to uh, tackle some of the the harder localization and mapping problems. It's not a complete solution because the price for having a descriptor and detector that's more robust against changes such as illumination or seasonal changes is actually that it also likes to match things that are not the same physical thing. 
So if you run it on like a simple scene where SIF features would, would work completely well, you might get like bad results because it, the front and the back of the building look very similar on a high level. So they get superimposed because it matches uh, features between images of the front and the back. Whereas SIFT looks at like lower level details and says, okay, this is clearly a different thing. So um, there's still room for improvement, also making those things much faster. So at the moment, we're talking about maybe a second or so of extracting features, um, whereas SIFT can do this in a couple of milliseconds. So, uh, but it's an interesting technique and it's, I, I think it has inspired others to, to also look into the relation between detectors and descriptors. Um, so yeah, it, the paper did its, what it was supposed to do, get challenged a bit, what other sort of, you have to first detect and then describe. And uh, just, just would like to point out that uh, I, I think Swift is still in the OpenCV ecosystem and it, it's implemented in C, you can nicely call it, it works really well in milliseconds. Yeah. I mean, SIFT is still one of the best descriptors out there, I would say. It's, it, if you take SIFT, you know when it will work and you don't know when it will not work. So we have so much experience with SIFT now that, that there's good understanding of, well, it will work in a variety of scenes, certain types of scenes like weekly textured regions. You know that, well, SIFT is not going to work. But then again, a lot of the other descriptors will also not work. Um, uh, so... And yeah, it works out of the box and it generalizes very well. Let, let's put it this way. Um, and since last year, I think there's no patent on it anymore, if I remember correctly. So yeah, all the more power to sift. Yeah, um, but but coming back to the approaching research question, you, mm -hmm. you just shared your intuition about your yeah. work uh, and you already had an intuition about sift. Yeah. But when, when you come across the idea, I'm sure it's a running conversation for your research. Uh, how do you approach uh, experiments or how do you build this intuition uh, while working on a problem? I think what helps is, is to do experiments and to try to understand what's going on there. I think this is something that I try to, to get in, in the papers that I'm involved in that the experimental evaluation part is not just saying, oh, we get better numbers, everything is good, but also try to understand why you get better numbers and also try to understand um, why it fails. Uh, and in that regard, I think doing theoretical computer science was helped me in the sense of uh, there you can actually have proof saying you can't do this because you find a counterexample that shows um, there's, there's no way that your algorithm could could have property X. And I think, and, and finding those counterexamples is, is a lot of trying out different things, trying to poke at the, the algorithm or the problem from different directions. And I think that that helps you understanding what algorithms do. So I think there's also, I think Vladlin Colton once gave a great talk saying, um, if you want to understand what, um, where the state of the art is, get the source code of some state-of-the-art method and try to make it fail. Mm. Uh, try to see where, where the challenges are. And I think this is, this is a good way of, uh, of approaching research, at, at least when it comes to, to uh, tackling a practical problem such as uh, visual localization. Um, there are, of course, other problems such as uh, minimal solvers, so estimating 
uh, geometric relations between point correspondences or correspondences between pixels and 3D points, where you can actually have a very nice mathematical model and then approach this with mathematical tools such as Gripner bases. Um, but my research is more of the prodding and uh, pulling and algorithms type, um, trying to understand where it works, where it's not working. Um, I think that that's where I get the intuitions of what can be done and what can't be done. Um, that's and that actually, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to point out that that's, that's also a great insight. As, as we move towards more robust mm -hmm. uh, research, it's, it's interesting to yeah. check if uh, we can break, if, if it, it doesn't happen now as much, but if there's just one random seed that's setting everything to work like it is. Yeah, I think in that regard, it also helps to visualize things. Um, uh, just just not only look at numbers, but also see how the visual results look like. Um, because I think numbers can sometimes be a bit, uh, they can hide things, right? Uh, you just see it, it does not, well in 95% of the cases, which is better than 93, your previous competitors. But maybe you're just being better at the easier cases and you're still as bad as in, in the hard cases. Um, so that, that would actually be a suggest, uh, uh, um, what's the right English word? Uh, recommendation to young researchers is try to visualize what's going on. Try to actually look at examples, see how your algorithms perform on those. Um, to, to outsiders like me who are also interested in approaching research problems, uh, do, do you think this is also a good approach to just start by tweaking uh, favorite or uh, best papers and then building an intuition and going from there? Or do you have any any advice outside of that? I think that's actually a good idea to to figure out what the unsolved problems are, because especially when when you read a paper and you're new in a field, you're like, okay, they have solved this problem, right? Uh, and most often they well they found uh, a solution that works well on the data sets they tested. Part of the answer. Uh, yes, uh, but then if you if you try it out on a new data set, you see that it's not working that well. Or if you visualize some of the results, then you see it's not working that well. Um, and I think understanding where the state of the art is and where you can make improvement requires trying to break things. So trying to, to figure out how much can I, like how much stress can I put on an algorithm before it breaks? And I think that's also, in general, a very interesting research direction, finding robust robust techniques that work well on a wide range of, of topics. So in that regard, we actually had a ECU workshop called the Robust Vision Challenge, where you were forced to train your network on multiple data sets and then use the same network on to evaluate on all of them, uh, just to see how how much of your performance was because the network understood things and uh, learned general topics versus you were like finding a very narrow solution that was very narrow, uh, very tailored to your data set. Um, unfortunately, it was not that many people who submitted, but well, we hope that this will become a, a more important topic in the future. And I, I think it will be. Definitely, as we approach from uh, what we call narrow AI, the problems that we're discussing essentially is narrow AI towards more general uh, or at least robust problems. Yeah, I, I also think that there might there will be a shift from data sets to uh, 
uh, two experiences uh, in the sense of a data set is you, you're given a set of uh, data points, so images, um, but you have no influence of what the where the images come from and you can't alter whereas an experience would be, for example, a simulation where you actually have an agent that can interact with the scene. Um, and I think that, that will be a natural next step. And there's a lot of interesting work in creating such simulators, for example, Facebook's uh, AI Habitat, uh, the Gibson environment by Stanford um, and Berkeley. And I think there, there will be a lot of interesting things coming out from this direction, moving from passively ingesting data to more actively learning from interactions and, uh, and being able to actually um, to have an hypothesis of the environment and verify it. I think that's what, what this type of experiences allows you to do. Do you think transfer learning could, could be part of the answer as, as we're seeing a shift towards transfer learning being applied to more uh, broader problems for this case? I think so, yes. Um, I mean, I think that's to some degree what humans do, right? That we, we are good in transferring knowledge from like abstract knowledge from one task to another. Um, and I think that that allows us to learn from much fewer training examples. So yeah, I think that that will be a very interesting, very promising research direction. I, I think another interesting uh, area could be just using games as, as gamers. I, I'm a gamer. So as games mm -hmm. become more realistic, uh, we have better physics or better world simulations yeah. already encoded in them, although leaving aside all the copyright issues and whatnot. Uh, yes, I think there was some very interesting work by Platlin Colton's group on, I think it was Stefan Richter who did the uh, work on using game engines to create uh, training data for machine learning algorithms. Um, one of the things that I'm actually interested in is uh, as a as human, that's, that also holds true for like non-realistic games that we're able to abstract away from like a pixelated Mario figure to, okay, this is my character and he's interacting with the world in a certain way, like jumping onto things. Um, and that to me, there seems to be a leap from, from this abstract scene understanding uh, that we currently haven't done with machines. Uh, that where we are still very much looking at like the visual input. I think to me, this is, like having an abstract layer that that gives you an abstract scene representation that goes away from pixel colors, uh, I think that's. And then once you have this, you can train other algorithms. Uh, I think that's an interesting question, uh, interesting direction because it should allow you to train from much less training data because you abstract away all this visual input where you potentially could overfit quite a bit. Hmm. So in. Coming back to your question, I think games are a very interesting uh, direction for this. Yes, for, for sure. Happy, happy to know that we as a community are hopefully contributing to some future research. Uh, yeah. Coming to uh, the other paper that I really wanted to dive in, it's titled for the audience. It'll, it'll be linked in the show notes, but if you want to look it up, semantic visual localization. Uh, I, from what I've understood, this is also really uh, essential to making self-driving cars or autonomous robots. Can, mm -hmm. can you help us understand the paper and what's, uh, what's the research about? So the, the, the underlying goal is to, to bring some sort of scene understanding in, in a, into a localization uh, 
uh, algorithm. So um, the idea here is that we want to learn local features or feature dis descriptors more precisely. And we assume that we're not just given images, but also a depth map um, and a semantic segmentation of the scene. Um, and what the, the goal here that we want to learn is we want to learn descriptors from some sort of proxy task. Um, so we didn't want to prescribe, okay, those points have to match, um, but we wanted the network to kind of figure this out on its own. And the way that we formulated it is that, uh, so you have your depth map, this is a partial observation of the scene. Some parts will be occluded. You will not be able to see other parts, um, but you would like to extract a descriptor that matches against uh, the part, also versions of that, that same part of the scene uh, where you observe the things that you don't see from this view. So we, we're actually formulating this as a scene completion task where the idea is you get a partial observation uh, and you have to compute the complete observation as if you had would see this part from all viewpoints. And it turns out that if you do this through, through some encoder decoder architecture, uh, that the bottleneck layer actually gives you good descriptors because partial observations that map to the same observation should actually be close in this, this latent space as well. Um, and it turns out that this whole task becomes much easier if you, if you know what you're looking at compared to just seeing like points and geometric elements, because then you can reason of, okay, this is a wall. I don't see this part, but most likely it's going to be straight. Um, so for example, because there's a tree in front of it, but you still know there's a wall and you mm. know that the tree will actually not go into the wall, but it has to stop before the wall, right? Um, and we saw that this actually having this simple semantic understanding, uh, helped quite a bit give, give us better descriptors. Um, we did something similar in, in images in the sense of. Um, we labeled, so we, we used a standard uh, visual localization system where each three point has an image descriptor. You do 2D3 matching via descriptors to get matches, then do post estimation. Um, and one thing that, that helps us if you have semantic segmentations, you can assign each 3D point a semantic class. Then if your 3D point and your uh, 2D point have different classes, then obviously your match is going to be wrong. Um, also, you can enforce that if you get a reasonably good post, then points labeled as buildings should project into area that are areas that are buildings uh, and not into the sky or something. Um, that's uh, some of the work that we did with Carl Toft uh, at, I think, ECV 2018. Um, but one thing that we realized is that uh, there are not that many semantic classes around. So in outer scenes, it's building, it's sky, it's car, uh, it's pedestrian, it's some side work, which is a very uh, like invariant description because a, car, a building will be a building independently mm. of whether you see it from a slightly different viewpoint under a different season, but it's not very discriminative. Uh, and with Mons Larsson, we did a very interesting IC 2019 paper where we actually tried to learn a much more fine-grained uh, uh, segmentation and the idea was uh, we wanted to train this without, tell, without actually having to annotate more data. And the way that we did this is we would um, use a self-supervised approach that would do clustering in some latent space. And then we would enforce that 3D points 
uh, like image points that belong to the same three point in the scene would end up at, with the same label in this latent space. And that, that worked very well. So we could easily scale from like 19 classes such as in cityscapes to 100 or 200 or even 1,000 classes. Um, and we saw that because you get a much more fine-grained segmentation, this actually boosts localization performance quite a bit, uh, which I think was very nice. Um, we had originally hoped that this would force the network to actually learn something meaningful. So we would hope, had hoped that it would learn about windows or doors on facades. But what it actually turned out to learn is, and this is where we come back to uh, the recommendation of visualizing your results, it actually learned to introduce additional classes between building and sky or between car and road, because it essentially learned there's some sort of lower layer of a car, which is different from the upper layer. Um, and uh, that was interesting to see that, that the network is, Was that essentially this. like an internal embedding that you later uh, uh, interpreted? Yes, yeah. It's, so it's mapping every, every pixel to some point in an embedding. And then you do k-means clustering on this embedding to define a set of classes. Okay. Um, if if I were to like rephrase this, it can can it be uh, correlated to guessing what's what's in uh, in our vision while we while we're driving down the road, like guessing okay, beyond the road there shouldn't be a wall in the middle of the road, but mm -hmm. if I see a tree, I shouldn't drive there. Can can that be a nice? I I think it's not that that sophisticated. I think what it learns is that uh, boundaries, if you want to do accurate post-estimation, boundaries between things are important. Because as I said, you would like to have a three-point labeled with class K to project into a pixel that has class K. So if you introduce an additional boundary class, then this es essentially gives you some additional knowledge because you know that the point should not project into the middle of the car, but the boundary to the other things. And that should give you much uh, stronger constraints for localization. Um, so in that sense, it's still doing something very stupid. It's, it's doing something meaningful, but it's not really understanding the scene, right? But it's still away, far away from uh, what we would do um, as humans, where we would actually understand what we're looking at. And this, this spatial understanding, semantic understanding, this I think is something that I haven't fully seen. And this I think is a very interesting research direction. Definitely. Another point that you uh, shared was not, not that in, in general semantic segmentation takes a lot of resources, mm -hmm. but also there's a lack of uh, data sets relatively uh, compared to other, other domains. Yeah. Um, so that, I th this is, I think, where this, um, uh, this method that I just described is interesting because you, you don't need semantic classes. Uh, you don't need labels. You just need correspondences between points, and then you can enforce that those points belong to the same class. Um, one thing that I should say is our method worked better if it started from a network trained for semantic segmentation compared to classification. So there's, you still inherently need some sort of semanticness. Um, and I think what would be interesting is to, to do some sort of hierarchical approach there where you would actually have a data set where you have classes and then you would say, uh, force a network to create subclusters for this uh, classes. And that, that would enforce that it still learns something semantic uh, while potentially being able to, to train from data sets where you actually don't have semantic segmentation. That would be my hope. Um, 
but yeah, uh, I guess one of the things, many things that I should try out at some point. Definitely fascinating topics. Uh, now, zooming out, uh, I also, you, you might disagree, but I again like to point out, I, I also love understanding how great researchers work, how, how does a day in their life look like? So what does a day in your life on non-pandemic days look like? Uh, are you also teaching any courses in general? Um, so I recently moved from Chalmers University uh, to the uh, Czech uh, Institute for Informatics, Robotics and Cybernetics, which is part of the Czech Technical University in Prague. So I started in July 2020, so a couple of months ago. And the goal is to, to teach at some point, um, but I'm currently not teaching. Um, so I was teaching at uh, Chalmers. I was teaching at ETH. And I taught courses like a general image analysis course at Chalmers, which was a lot of fun because it uh, covered local features. It covered geometry, estimation, deep learning, structural motion. Uh, and I taught a course on on 3D computer vision at ETH, and I hope to teach something similar to this uh, here in Prague soon. But I still need to set this up. Um, but I mean, I do teaching in the sense of working with with PhD students, right? Uh, master students, which which is some sort of teaching process itself, right? Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, what a non-pandemic day looks like, uh, that's hard to, to tell. I mean, uh, it has been a while that I had a non-pandemic <laughs> day and I haven't been able to, to get like a non-pandemic uh, day layout, if you want to call this, uh, here in Prague. Because, I, mean, I arrived here uh, in like one of the, the lulls, but now the cases are rising again. So we're back to working from home. Mm. But typically it's I mean, get up in the morning, uh, go to work, think a bit about some problems or just use the, the bus or train ride to, to just empty mind a bit, check emails, answer emails, go for lunch, answer some more emails, do some research, do some emails, uh, go home and, and try to, um, try to maybe not answer emails or check anything in the evening. <laughs> Think that that would be the goal but okay um but i i also uh enjoy asking this question uh as as you've taught lectures uh and interacted with different levels of students mm -hmm. uh do you see a common I, I want to say mistake that uh we as new learners or as different levels of learners commit while while approaching the subject i'm not sure whether this is a like common mistake is the right word but one thing that I see is there seems to be, in some cases, uh, the expectation that just like everything that you need to know will be taught in the lecture. And that's, that's, that's where learning starts. Uh, where I see more see a lecture of, as a way of saying, okay, this is the fundamentals. This is um, where, where things start. Uh, and here are the top of uh, like, branch of topics but ex you have to explore them on your own that's the more the the goal of the lecture is to provide a map where things roughly are and then you have to uh, delve into like explore those regions more on your own um and this is maybe something that i've seen in students i've not seen it in students but i uh and sometimes i miss more of the willingness to to try to to delve into a topic 
try to figure out what what's going to happen there uh, rather than just saying uh, I don't understand this uh, can you explain this again um, but uh, but coupled to this is also I think um, one mistake is not asking enough questions um, uh, and in the sense of you can, I mean, it's easy to say, I don't understand this, uh, trying to express what you don't understand, where I lost you when I explained something. I think that, that's something, that's some sort of art. And to me, this is, I think, one of the most important things that you will learn uh, during studies or in your life is trying to figure out what's the right amount of question that I need to ask uh, and how do I ask questions as to give the person that I'm asking some idea of where I stand uh, and where I need more information. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, I would say this is the most important skill that you will learn from studies. Like, uh, that, that's the thing that you should try to learn. Great researchers always ask great questions uh, for sure. I'm, I'm not sure if they always ask great questions, but I think ask, the willingness to ask questions and understanding that um, they, they are stupid questions, definitely, but uh, most, most likely you're not asking a stupid question. And most likely there are other people who also would like to ask the, the question, uh, but feel too shy or feel like they would look stupid. Uh, that's, I think, asking the stupid, the, what you think is a stupid question is definitely a good thing. Um, and also, I think one important, uh, one mistake would be uh, be too shy to ask what you consider stupid questions. I mean, mm. what, what's the worst thing that, that can happen? The, the person that you ask will tell you, please have a look at this, uh, or I just explained this. But in most cases, the teacher or uh, a senior uh, researcher or supervisor will tell you, oh, but this is like this. So there's, there's typically a willingness to explain this. And at least I'm happy for all questions that, that students ask in my lecture because it gives me the feeling that someone is listening to what I'm saying and not just passively consuming content. Thank, thank you for that correction. I, I think uh, I saw this uh, quote by Helena Sarin, who's mm -hmm. one of my favorite uh, AI artists, if I may. There are no stupid questions, only lazy questions. I like that so much. It's now my WhatsApp status, but I really like that quote. Um, yes. What would be a lazy question, though? Uh, Someone like me who wouldn't uh, Google first and ask the question first. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't do my homework before asking the question. That's a lazy question, I think. But it depends on the context, right? Yes. So you're attending a talk and you're really not getting this. Yes. Uh, and it might be super simple and maybe Googling um, uh, might answer your question, but you might you don't want to Google it, uh, it during the talk because then you're miss, going to miss everything else. And most likely there's someone else in the audience who, who also uh, doesn't understand this. So, I mean, it might look like a lazy question, but it could be a very interesting question. It also gives the speaker a better idea of who's in the audience, right? And what's the level of technical detail uh, that I can go into without losing a large part of my audience. So it's not a lazy question in that sense, right? For sure. Um, Dimitro Mushkin, who's also at CDU, one of my mentors, he's already been on the podcast, I'm sure the audience remembers. He's asked this question, uh, 
is there any difference in academic culture uh, in different places you worked in uh, differences in countries or small mm-hmm. things you miss or wish were adopted uh, better worldwide uh there are differences in culture uh, not necessarily academic culture so um in some countries so uh people are what's the right word uh putting say academic the academic work that you do in relation to the rest of life uh and some countries are are better at this or think than others I'm not going to name names here um but i think it's important it's especially important as as a phd student um that uh yes i mean academic success is nice but it's not everything um and putting this into context i think is is important and uh i think the pandemic has helped uh there quite a bit especially also for for senior researchers um who see that there that all of a sudden there are more important things in life than getting the next paper out uh, certainly helped me to to understand that 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 also allows me to segue into a topic that uh, we were just discussing offline but you had this i think uh, dima damin also who's been on the podcast as a selfless mm-hmm. plug for the audience started this thread of uh, rejections uh, from conferences and you you also yeah. uh, contributed to it so can you share your, uh, that thread for us or just just your insights of mm-hmm. being active in the field and the just for the audience It'll again be in the show notes but it shared what people would consider failures in research i i mean you have to live with the fact that your papers will be rejected uh especially nowadays it used to be i think much easier when i started um and it used to be much less competitive um I mean as i said i i start i for mostly focused on theoretical computer science uh when i did my masters uh before i started my phd i never had a lecture on um uh, on computer vision um i definitely never had a paper published before i applied for a phd position um and the sad thing is i would most likely not hire myself anymore because the level of quality of current students is much higher you have people who who had dedicated computer vision machine learning conferences often you have people who already have publications at at major computer vision conferences um uh but i also feel like this has made things much more competitive and uh um has put a much higher pressure on on students phd students to have like five cvpr papers or so before before they graduate um which is is possible but i mean it also yeah as i said it puts a high burden and then if things don't work out uh then you get stressed and uh i mean things not working out is just part of research uh i was when i started i i was lucky enough that one of my PhD advisors joined the university in the same month and that he didn't have that many students to work with or uh, that the not well the he he was starting his own group right so he had more time so and I could pick his brain um mm. and get help from him and that helped me with my my first paper um and I figured well what's so hard in writing papers that went well right um and then I don't think that I published anything else for another one and a half years or so because nothing was working um 
And yes, I mean, that's tough. Uh, I was definitely considering quitting my PhD in this period of time because I felt I'm not producing enough. Um, but I also think that, at least in hindsight, it was more in my head that I was setting too high expectations of myself. Um, and I think, yeah, it's also what, what if you talk to PhD students, they, I've often enough heard similar stories uh, from other students, also from, from peers that, that are very successful. Um, but that's nothing that, so as a PhD student, you have to, uh, to learn this essentially yourself that rejection happens. Uh, and this is, I think, where, where Dima's um, uh, Twitter thread was very helpful because it, it shows people, look, this is common. It happens to everyone. And uh, I mean, I I don't, so I tried during my PhD, I tried publishing a CVPR paper that didn't happen until, so I started my PhD in 2008. I didn't ha have a CVPR paper until 2016 or so. So it didn't work for a long time. Um, it's, but yeah, I mean, the, I got enough papers rejected from other conferences. I think I, I explained which papers got rejected in which year. So if you look at this, it's actually quite a long list. Um, but at the same time, I think nearly all of them eventually got published. Um, and, and that's also one of the things that I needed to learn, uh, still learning is that it's, so often the the uh, intuitive or the instinctive reaction is, oh, the reviewer didn't understand what we are doing. They are stupid. But in most cases, actually, yeah, maybe they didn't get it what you were doing, but that's partially also on you because you didn't describe it in a way that that actually made it easy for them to get what you're doing, why what you're doing is cool. So I think there's... Uh, we there is tremendous opportunity in, in writing a better paper if it gets rejected. Um, uh, and I think that's also something that, that you need to learn at some point is um, taking a more objective view on your own research um, and its shortcomings. Uh, I'm not saying I'm too good at this. Whenever I get reviews, I'm still like, why can't you understand what I'm trying to say? But uh, in, in the end, it's more, uh, it's partially my fault if the reviewer doesn't get it. Um, Thank you for the uh, very, very honest uh, share. Another thing that I've, I've observed is uh, the common theme of tenacity, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. just uh, sticking to the process. Someone who's like me who hacks together Kaggle projects, the first instinct is to control A, delete everything because it doesn't work. But how do you stay motivated enough or how do you uh, train yourself to remain consistent when things don't work? Um. I think having a good motivation to to do all of this, like to do, say, a PhD, I think that's super important. If you're just in there to to get a couple of additional letters next to your uh, name, then then I think it will get be hard to keep going when the going gets tough. Um, I think, yeah, remembering yourself, uh, remembering why you're doing this and what got you into this in the first place, I think that's good. Um, uh, talking with other people, I think, also helps. Like getting perspective, getting uh, getting feedback from your supervisor or someone else or some other senior researcher, I think, helps. Both in terms of what you can do or what you could try, uh, like technically, but also 
putting things into perspective. Um, and I think there are actually also enough papers um, out there which, which were rejected at Walter Conference and then won a Best Paper Award at the other, uh, understanding that there is, there is a certain randomness in our, uh, in our review process uh, and accepting this and uh, learning to accept this. Uh, understanding that you can make, do good work uh, but still get a paper rejected. Uh, I think that that's, that's an important insight. Um, but yeah, I think a good, good strategy is to, to talk with someone uh, and get higher level feedback, say, okay, this is the direction that I'm working on. Do you think that actually makes sense? I talk to someone who's not as involved. Or can you give you an honest answer and saying, uh, yeah, this is maybe not that good an idea of what you think it is. Uh, I think that's good. Um, the other thing what I can recommend is at some point, if nothing's uh, working, uh, stop doing it. Uh, do something else. Uh, focus on something else. Uh, and then revisit this at a, at a later point in time. Um, I had enough papers uh, that well, we had the idea earlier, but it turns out that we were missing some crucial component uh, that would actually make it work. And then you discover this couple of years later uh, and then you can still write this paper so one example is we had this paper on uh, voting for camera pose estimation which was uh, I think an oral at ICV 2015 got rejected from CVPR 2014 uh, just to get back to the question of getting from a rejected paper to an oral um, but I think we had this idea in I worked on this the first time in 2010, I think, but I couldn't get it to work. Uh, and we uh, we were missing one a few crucial components, uh, which we realized after reading another paper that was published in 2014. Um, yeah, at some point, uh, sometimes your ideas are just good, but there's something flawed in it. And then I think it helps to to say, okay, I'm trying to do go in a slightly different direction. I'm going to revisit this at some point. That helps. Like you said, the fresher perspective. I, I'm I'm guessing I'm I'm not a researcher. I'm guessing it would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, zooming out a bit, uh, as a general question, what research outside of uh, the ones that you are pursuing is of interest to you? So the ones that are outside your domain uh, that you might be following. I, I actually so. We're currently working on, on uh, I think, privacy-preserving elements in machine learning and other things, I think, are very interesting. Uh, it's one of the things that I'm currently on the side trying to learn. Like Differential privacy, I think, is very important, uh, interesting and important. Um, scientific writing, I think, is, is an interesting thing. Uh, how, how to do writing... Um, I think there's also uh, Dima and I had a thread, I think at someone sometime on at Twitter on reviewing papers, yes. uh, all this organizational thing. I think that that's interesting. It's, it's still very related to what we're doing. Um, but I think this is something that I'm currently passionate about. So Laura Leal Taget and I um, co-organized uh, organized a CVPR tutorial on this. Uh, which was one of the most fun thing, fun tutorials that, that I ever did because uh, 
we just invited a couple of uh, senior researchers to talk about reviewing and writing papers. I think there were a lot of interesting interesting ideas in those talks. Uh, the, the videos are online uh, on YouTube if you want to find it. Uh, it's on. Just uh, look for how to write a good rebuttal, a review uh, CVPR 2020 tutorial. Uh, but I think this is also very important for the community because computer vision machine learning has grown so much that it becomes harder and harder to find an expert to review your paper. Um, one of the consequences of this is uh, that you should write papers knowing this. So you have you are forced to, to make your papers e more easily accessible because most likely the, the one who's going to judge it is not a super expert in this. Um, but the other consequence of this, this large growth means that uh, we are seeing more and more submissions, but we, it's not that all of a sudden we have as many more qualified or uh, experienced reviewers, right? So we are asking more and more second, third year PhD students to review papers. But at the same time, we're not providing enough guidance to say, okay, this is the things that you should be looking for. Um, and there's this risk that uh, because some of those reviews can be toxic and can be uh, people might might not take that much time um, yeah. as they should. And then as as a young researchers, you, you assume, okay, this is the way that review should be written. So you're going to write it in the same way. And that's an ever like cycle that makes things more and more, more and ha uh, more hard. And I think we as a community should be, should be providing guidance uh, to our students and um, both at, through tutorials, but also probably we should have courses at universities that, okay, read, this is a way that you read a paper. This is the way that you write a paper. This is like the type of things that you might want to, to look into. Um, and yeah, that, that's currently something that I'm very interested in and that, that I've thought about for some time now. Um, coming to the final question, which is always a repeat question on the podcast. Yeah. What's what's your best advice to generally anyone who's just starting out in the field, indie researcher and outsider who's looking into research or even a new researcher? Um, I guess be persistent is, is a good, uh, good thing. Uh, believe in your ideas. Uh, don't get down if someone... If, if your review comes back negative, uh, find, find someone who will give you positive encouragements. Um, hold your supervisor accountable in the sense of uh, ask them to spend time with you to, to like get them to, to sit down with you and help you out with uh, when you get stuck. Um, learning how to to identify when you're stuck and when you would need help, I think is is something that that should be very high on the things of uh, list of things that you should learn as quickly as possible, which will also make the interaction with the supervisor much easier because then you can talk say your discussion shifts from I don't understand what's going on to I think this is going on but I don't know why. Uh, can you help me with this? Um, uh, what else? Um, find a hobby outside of research for PhD students. Um, 
I think those were the, would be the most the things in the back of my head. Uh, find something that you're passionate about, something that you want to do, uh, something that, that makes you happy. Um, and where you say, okay, I, this is something that I believe in, that this is something that I think will have an impact. This is something that I like to do. I think that's in many cases more important than and trying to follow the recent, most recent trend and seeing everyone is doing X, I should also be doing X. Uh, do Y if Y is more interesting for you. Uh, that's, that's also an amazing uh, advice to end the interview on. But before we do that, uh, yeah. for the audience, what's the best platforms to connect with you? Uh, write me an email. Uh, send, write me something on Twitter. I think those those are the most easy ways of approaching me uh, or uh, LinkedIn. Tostin's uh, handle on Twitter is his second name concatenated with first name. So please feel free to find him there or check the show notes for our descriptions to both of his profiles. Tostin, thank you so much for your time and for such an insightful interview. Uh, on this thank series. you very much for the opportunity. It was my pleasure talking with you. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.